The following is a teaching message from the chapel in Tiatatu. For more information about the chapel, please visit www.thechapel.org.nz. It's been really encouraging to welcome a number of new folk, quite a number of new folk in recent weeks and months. For those who aren't too sure, on the third Sunday of every month we have communion and we have uh, different folk uh, just lead the, lead the introductory thoughts for communion, so that'll be next Sunday. Any other Sunday, we usually have this spot of, so what's God been saying? What have you seen God doing? Because for me, the two key things that a disciple of Christ needs to do is to listen for God and to see God at work and to join him in what he's doing. And so to encourage us to think about that, we give the opportunity to share. There was something else. Oh, the other thing is, during the worship time, if you feel led to pray, you pray. Particularly if you feel led to pray out loud. There's not a restricted number. There's not a secret code about who's approved and who's not approved. If you just want to pour out your heart to God. Now, if you've got a word of prophecy, and if you are new to the congregation, and so it's the first time you bring a word, it may come and just tap me on the shoulder and say, I just want to share this word. And I'm probably going to go, that's fine. Because it's about protecting the congregation from anything that's sort of too out. But it doesn't take long for me to go, if you feel God lays something on your heart, a word that you need to bring, you bring it. Because for me that's biblical. And I was just doing some reflection again this morning. And I want to encourage all of you to go home and read 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14. Often 1 Corinthians 14 has headed up instructions for worship. Um, I notice in my Bible it's now headed up intelligibility for worship. If you have a read of it, you'll understand why. But I don't think 14 stands alone. I think 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14 are a very clear package. And for me, that's my heart for what this church is to be. I was talking to Chris just before the service and explaining that my heart for this church is this is, in fact the phrase I came up with during the week, is this is the locus, not the focus. Who knows what a locus is? The locus, locus is where we have the word location. This is the locus, it's not the focus, it's not about, this church is not about what happens here on a Sunday. This is part of what I was called to, was to help make sure this ran. But the two main things that captured my heart when I applied for the position here at the chapel, getting on for eight years ago now, was a desire, firstly, we have a community trust. And about five or six hundred people a week pass through this building for various things to do with the community trust, most of them non-believers. And the cry was, we see so many people come through the building and so few end up here in the place of worship. And so one of the things was to build connection between our, what are now our trust partners. They used to be the hall hirers. They're now our trust partners. They partner with us to serve our community. And so we build relationships. That was the first thing. And the second thing was these um, communities of faith out in the community for people who may never come to this place. Um, there's a guy, Mike Porteous, who I've talked about who's uh, picked up on some of the Discovery Bible Study disciple-making movement stuff that we've 
been talking about a little bit here and I'm going to get him to come at some stage uh, to share a little bit more about what he's doing in that area. Um, but it's the idea that there are people who for all sorts of reasons will never, never darken the door of a church. It's just too scary. But they will meet Christ in all sorts of places. And one of, the, one of my favourite stories um, as, as the heart of discovery and disciple-making movements is that Jesus comes across the lake in a boat and as he comes across, there's this guy who's absolutely demon-possessed, throws himself at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus sets him free and the guy says, can I come and join your church? He says, Jesus, can I come with you? And Jesus says, no, go back to the place where you've lived. So this guy is so well-known in what's called the Decapolis. It's ten towns. And so if you read some of our stuff, you see a reference to ten towns, and it comes out of the story. And Jesus says to him, go back to those towns. They know what you were. They will see what you are. Tell them about me. Tell them about Jesus. And then as the story unfolds, years later, Paul goes and spends, before we pick up with Paul in the, in the book of Acts, Paul actually spent time in that area of the Decapolis. And I wonder whether he spoke and taught some of those who'd come to faith through the demonic. And so that's my heart, is to see this crazy multiplication of gatherings of faith out there in the community. This is the locus, not the focus. He's the focus. And so this morning we are... Actually, I thought... This, actually, I'll say... Um, when you were talking about your friends in Afghanistan. And then we sang that song, uh, I Stand, with arms high. Whenever I sing that song, I always picture a bald guy, 39. He was my worship leader in Melbourne. He took that photo in Afghanistan when he went there as a missionary. That was the place that God called him to go and serve. And he went through some really tough stuff there. Um, so it always touches my heart. God calls us into some tough places at times. For now, the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal. Now if you're reading in your Bible, you may find that it says take seven of every kind of clean animal. There's some debate about what the translation is, whether it's seven or seven pairs. At the end of the day, it mattered to Noah, it mattered to the animals, it didn't matter to us. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a, mate, a male and its mate, and every kind, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for forty days, and forty nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood waters came on the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the flood waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals of birds and of all the creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark, 
as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the floodwaters came on the earth. It seems that God had determined the timing of the flood 120 years earlier when Noah was 480 years old. We're not sure of, though, is when God told Noah of the plan. God may have said to Noah back then, going to destroy the earth. We don't know that. wonder how many years there are between the end of chapter 6 and then the then, which starts chapter 7. That's a fairly long period of time, one would imagine. We know that after Noah turned 500, he, he became the father of Shem, Ham and Japheth. Shem was not the oldest. Shem is named first as a matter of priority because it's Shem's line is going to be the key part of our story that we follow through as we go through the book of Genesis. In uh, Genesis 11, we're told that two years after the flood, okay, so Noah was 600 when the flood came. When Noah was 602, Shem was 100 years old. That means that Shem was born when Noah was about 502. If we then go to back to Genesis 10:21, sons were born to Shem whose older brother was Japheth. So Japheth had been born before Shem, which means Japheth was born when Noah was either 500 or 501. And then if we come to this other little story that, um, yeah, that'll be interesting to unpack next year. Um, you can pre-read it if you want. Um, Ham was the father of Canaan, and when Noah awoke from his wine, and you see I've missed out the story, those who know the story, um, and found out what his youngest son had done. So Ham was the youngest of the three boys. He may have been born when Noah was 504, 505, maybe a little bit later, we're not sure. We still don't know when God told Noah that he was going to build the ark, but the first information we are given is here in Genesis 6 when God says to Noah, I'm going to put an end to the, to the, to the people. This is the first time it records in Genesis God telling Noah that I'm going to put an end to the earth for it's filled with violence and I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. And then down in verse 18, he says, But I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wives and your sons' wives with you. So one kind of assumes that by the time God is speaking to Noah that Shem, Ham and Japheth have grown 20, 30, maybe 40 years of age, met wives and married. It could be that God's going, look, one of these days your kids are going to be old enough and they're going to marry and have wives but, and you're only going to have three sons. But it's quite likely that this is about the time frame in which God said the flood will come. So when you start to work that through, if the boys are about 40 and they're married with their three wives and God said this is going to happen, I wonder how long before Noah started building the ark. We find that Noah did all that God commanded, so one assumes he started building reasonably quickly. All of that to say, I kind of have this picture in the back of my mind that Noah was like building this ark for like 50 years. He didn't have a boat builder's yard. He didn't have a Bunnings down the road. 
there was a lot of work involved. Sometimes you talk to my dad, or a couple of folk I know are reading his book, they'll discover that um, many years ago he bought an Austin Princess motor and then he bought some steel and from that he built up this a magnificent motorhome. And it took quite a few years. In fact, my son, who's now just turned 30, said, don't tell me you're going to bring the motorhome to Auckland because I don't believe it. He was four years old at the time. He was overjoyed when Grandad finally arrived with this motorhome. It had been so long and he was only four years old. The rest of us had waited for quite a bit longer. There's something about the wait. And so the ark was a much bigger project. But finally the day comes. Seven days from now. The ark is ready. As you read the story, the food is in the ark and the animals are on their way. And now the invitation is given. Go into the ark. In fact, some of the translations say, come into the ark. I kind of like that invitation. I kind of like the idea that God's already in the ark and he says, come into the ark. Other translations say go, but you know, one of the things I've realised that whenever God says go, he's also already gone before. When God calls you into anything, he also goes ahead of you into that place. So God's go is always a come. And so we find the preparations have been made and everything is ready. Noah did all that God commanded. That's not an easy thing. Imagine you're building this boat for 50 years and you've just got to keep going. And then Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives enter the ark. And then God brings, you know, you see this picture of Noah standing outside the boat and the animals coming in two by two and Noah sort of guiding them in. But it's kind of says Noah and his wives and his family went in and then the animals arrived and they went in. I try to imagine what that moment was like for Noah particularly. It's kind of foolish to assume that things flowed as easily as they do when we read the story. And we know the story so well, we've, we've read it to our children dozens and dozens of times. We've heard it in so many ways. We're so familiar with the story. But as Mike touched on before, we're also familiar with the questions around how could a loving God destroy all of those people? We struggle with that. Imagine what Noah struggled with. There's this massive amount of emotion going on for Noah. Half a century of building this boat, it's finally ready. There's the excitement of the completion and we're going in and I imagine my little granddaughter, Ellie, three years old, all these animals, she loves the zoo. We love to spend money and go on safari and here the animals, they're just, that's got to be impressive in itself. And yet for Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives, he's also aware that he's got friends and family, neighbours who aren't coming on board. 
And so for all of the anticipation, there's also this uncertainty. It's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. It's believed quite probable that it never actually rained before this. So we don't even know what rain's going to be like. And it's going to do this for 40 days and 40 nights. I know sometimes in the last winter it's kind of felt a bit like that. And you know what that feels like. The whole earth is going to be flooded and it's just going to be me and my wife and my three sons and their wives, but none of my family, none of my friends. We're told that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, so he's been out preaching the gospel in the neighbourhood, far and wide, possibly right throughout the 50 years, maybe longer. And none of them are coming onto the boat. Building the ark and entering in a profound acts of obedience the only comparison I can actually bring my mind to is Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane when he says God if it is possible take this cup from me my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death and he's sweating great drops of blood that's the only moment in scripture and that's far worse than what Noah was going through but the turmoil of that moment, but in that moment, Jesus says, not my will, but thine be done. This stands in such stark contrast to a few weeks ago when Eve, she hadn't got a name at that stage, but she's standing at the tree looking for the fruit. And the tempter says to her, did God really say? You won't surely die causing her to question not only what God said, but God's very character. And then here we are. Noah did everything that God had commanded. He took God at his word, and he trusted God's nature. How could he do that? Because like his great-grandfather Enoch, we're told that Noah was a righteous man, and he walked with God. And so they enter the ark that has been planned and designed by God, prepared by Noah and his family. This ark, which is God's chosen means of salvation for Noah and his family. Then we fast forward two and a half thousand years. And the Apostle Peter makes reference to these events in 1 Peter chapter 3. Now I'm going to pick up halfway through verse 20, because if you know the passage, or if you look at the passage, you will understand that it's one of the most difficult passages to understand, and we really don't have time for that this morning. One day I might sort of sit down and work my way through it, but partway through verse 20, he says, God waited patiently. This is the great apostle Peter. God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from your body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's probably a dozen sermons just in that passage as well. It 
The waters of the flood of Noah's day, they symbolize the baptism that now saves you. I noted a few weeks ago that while Noah was the only one uh, found righteous in his generation, the Apostle Paul would later write of his generation and of ours, there is no one righteous. There is not even a Noah. No one understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless and no one who does good, not even one. And a few verses later he says, but where in Genesis God has his but Noah. Now in Romans Paul has his but now apart from the law of righteousness of God has been made known. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. And then back in 1 Peter, a little bit earlier in that passage, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. God in Genesis declares judgment and says, oh, but I've got Noah. And in the New Testament, God makes his judgment known. And he says, but I've got a plan. I've got Jesus. Jesus made a way through baptism. Not the removal of body. It's not about the physical washing. It's about the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus. All Noah's family had was Noah. And all we have is Jesus. He is our righteousness. He is our salvation. He is our Noah. He is our ark. And if you think that the ark was a long time in the planning, don't forget that Jesus is the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. In him and through him and through his death we are saved. So, let's go back. Noah's standing there and the ark's ready, the animals are coming and God says, Noah, go into the ark. And God says, well, we've been talking about this and we've decided to stay. A little bit crazy. But again, when we go back to the New Testament, we're told by John that the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and through the world... uh, And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. When I was planning this series, I thought Noah and his flood is a crazy thing to be teaching leading up to Christmas. But I realized that maybe it's the perfect thing. Because here we have the Son of God being born in a manger, and up the road in Jerusalem, The religious leaders know where the baby is to be born. But they can't even bother, be bothered, going up the road to visit the baby. They have waited centuries, in fact they've waited millennia for the arrival of Messiah. When the prophecies begin to be fulfilled, 
They go, oh, we're a bit busy right now. It's kind of as crazy as Noah and his family going, oh, we've decided to stay. And so the only ones who come are a handful of shepherds and a few wise men, a few magi who travel vast distances to come and visit. That's crazy. Over the last few years we've worked through Luke's Gospel and we've, we've looked at the response repeatedly of the religious leaders to Jesus. And we go, they're crazy. And if we look at Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives going, oh, we've decided to stay. We'd go, they're crazy. But here we are. Some of us are baptised. Many of us have been baptised. Some, I imagine, in this room at the moment haven't been baptised. But the invitation is not just to be baptised. That's like suggesting that the point of the ark is that Noah and his family were going to spend the rest of their lives in the ark. The ark was the means of salvation. It was not with the purpose of salvation. They were not saved to live in the ark. They were saved through their time in the ark. So it is with baptism. We're not saved so that we can be baptised. Our baptism is a testimony to the salvation that God does in our lives. But that's not the end. That's not the purpose. It's just the first step to a whole new life. We're not just saved from something. We're saved for something. And yet I see so many Christians that I've met over the years that seems like they've been saved from something. Which they have. But they seem to have missed what they've been saved for. You see, when Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, a baby doesn't arrive just to be a baby. It's the start of a whole new life. When Paul's writing to the church in Galatia, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. There's something new and fresh, a whole new life that's ahead. The ark was never meant to be a final destination. It was the means of salvation for Noah and his wives and his sons and their wives. And there's a whole story that flows out beyond that. It was a transition through death and judgment into the life beyond. And that's what our salvation is. It's passing through death and judgment which Christ took upon himself. Jesus says, the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy. I have come that you might have life and have it more abundant. Have it to the full. And so Paul prays two prayers for the believers in Ephesus and I pray them for you and I would ask that you pray them for me. Because we all need to be reminded. And that you pray these for your friends and your neighbours. The first is in Ephesians chapter 1. And Paul says, For this reason, 
ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the, that the God the Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which you are called. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority. That's the power in you. He sat him above every, gave him a name that is above every name that is invoked not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And so as I read the second of Paul's prayers, I invite you to stand. As we finish our time this morning, stand with me. Because I, Paul continues, he says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of God's holy people to grasp how wide and long and deep and high is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So now unto him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The invitation this morning is for you to seek out and enter into all that God has for you. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this message from the chapel in Teatatu. For more information about the chapel, please visit www.thechapel.org.nz or email info at thechapel.org.nz.